people have a tendency of forgetting just how generous and kind our God is. We forget. We forget the benefits that are ours. We forget ways in which God has blessed us or enriched us. We see it in our lives in various ways. Uh, but our, our Bibles remind us of this tendency of humanity and even of God's people to forget. So we want to look by way of our recollection through some passages of Scripture to remember how God's people have forgotten. You'll remember shortly after God delivered His people from the land of Egypt, God was delivering the law of Moses on the mountain to Moses, and the people of Israel grew concerned that Moses would not come back. Even though they had seen the mighty deeds of God, the mighty hand of God in producing plague after plague after plague to deliver them from the land of Egypt, including the dividing of the Red Sea where they walked through on dry land, rescuing them from the chariots of Pharaoh and his armies. While Moses was there on that mountain and their anxieties grew, you'll remember that they brought their jewelry together and melted it down and Aaron, the high priest, molded for them a golden calf, a golden god. Behold your God that delivered you from the land of Egypt. How quickly they had forgotten. They wanted something to lay their eyes on that would help them. In Deuteronomy 32, Moses recalled the people's forgetfulness of God that led them to worship other gods. And this is what he wrote. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Oh, we look down our noses at the Israelites and say, oh, I would never do a thing like this. God reminds His people of their forgetfulness in the book of Hosea through the prophet Hosea. Listen to these words. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know not, excuse me, you know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought, but when they had grazed, they became full and they were filled, and their heart was lifted up, therefore they forgot me. Jeremiah the prophet reminds them in Jeremiah chapter 2, Be appalled, O heavens, at this, and be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. What does that say? They have forsaken me, that is the idea of forgetfulness, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water later in the same chapter. Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Oh, that's heartrending to think of people forgetting 
the benefits of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the goodness of God, the generosity of God, the kindness of God that is flooded into our lives. And yet the people of Israel forgot Him days without number. This is why God reminds us through David to bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Forget not all His benefits. Well, this morning, we want to remember the benefits provided us through the provider. He is the provider. Our God provides. And we want to remember this. And we're in Romans chapter 8, and God is reminding us through the Apostle Paul of the very benefits that we possess Because God is for us. Because God is for us, we have innumerable benefits. This morning we will focus in on six. Look at verses 31 through 39. It was read already. We're going to read it again. And then uh, I'm sure we'll see bits and pieces of this throughout. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the One who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Of the countless benefits of having God before us, God on our side. We want to see six of them this morning. First of all, just as a summary of last week, that is security against opposition. Security against opposition. If God is for us, who can be against us? Having God on your side, the Almighty, the Everlasting, the Eternal, the matchlessly wise, having Him on our side means all opposition really matters of little account. Security against opposition. Secondly, this is where we'll pick up our study this morning, unparalleled generosity. This is one of the benefits that, are, that is ours because God is for us. Unparalleled generosity. Verse 32 He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, 
how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God gave up his own son. God gave up his own son. His own son. We have previously spoken of this. Of course, we talk about this time and time again, but this plan of God giving up His own Son is an eternal plan, and God the Father planned this, determined to do this before the world began. He determined to give His Son as a once-for-all sacrifice to satisfy His own justice. Because my sin warrants the justice, judgment of God, to satisfy that justice and judgment, God sent His Son. He gave up His Son as an offering to satisfy His justice. Of course, we have to also understand that the Lord Jesus Christ willingly laid down His life as our sin-bearer. The, the Gospels are obvious that Jesus came to do the will of the Father, that no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. He gave His life for the sheep. And so we see that evidently throughout the Scriptures. This concept is at the heart of the Christian message. That the Father gave the Son to be the Savior of the world. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. This is at the heart of the Christian message. We have to constantly be refreshed and reiterating this reality that God willingly laid down His Son's life. That Jesus willingly laid down His life to bear my sin. He removed that sin debt, the guilt, and the condemnation associated with that sin. He removed it forever. Paul summarizes the Gospel so beautifully in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, where he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. God laid down the, His Son's life. He gave Him up for us all. This is generous. Generous to the nth degree. This is infinitely generous. And so Paul then argues from the greater to the lesser. If God has done this ultimate reality of giving up His own Son for us, how will He not also with Him also graciously give us all things? And so we see that continued graciousness where God graciously gives us all things. And so I think we have to ask some questions about what does He mean here about giving us all things? Does He mean that I should walk into Cumberland Farms later today and grab a candy bar and walk out the door and say, God has graciously given me all things. Here's my candy bar. Or should I be so foolish after having received a diagnosis of cancer to say, I am claiming right now my healing. Right now God will graciously give me this healing. I I claim it. Is this what Paul is talking about? Is he saying because God gave us His Son, every earthly blessing is always continuously and only mine. Not yours. I'm going to take your car after church. God has graciously given this to me. Try that one. See how it works. You'll find yourself in jail. And guess what? You'll say, God has graciously given me this. And someone will probably take your life. How will that work for you? 
Is that what God's talking about? Oh, well, what about all the suffering that God's people have done in through the course of history? What about all the, the apostles whose lives were snuffed out as they rightly proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ? What about this very context that talks about our groaning? That talks about our weakness? That talks about the difficulties of this life? That we will be glorified if we suffer with Him? Certainly He's not talking about having every single thing here and now. We can certainly see the future element of the believer's abundant inheritance. We are described in verse 17 as joint heirs and we know that Jesus is the heir of all things and so one day all these things will be ours but there is a present element to what he's talking about he's not just talking about that coming day what does he mean when he says God graciously gives us all things not just in the future but something that relates to now because he's already prepared us for this and he's going to come back to this again at the end of the chapter in verse 28 he uses this phrase all things and we know that for those who love god all things work together for good so he's already talked about this all things concept look down at verse 37 He says, no, in all these things we, doesn't say will be, we are more than conquerors. And so there is a present aspect to this all things in verse 32. He has given us, he's given up all things, excuse me, he's given up his son for us. How will he not with him also graciously give us all things? And so the the context is couched in both future terms, glorification, In present terms, the suffering that we deal with right now, but he tells us in verse 37 that God has made us a specific way. We are more than conquerors. The Greek term is hupernikao. Huper means super or beyond or over, over, beyond, and nikao means conquerors. We are abundantly conquerors. This word conqueror is used in 1 John and it's used in the book of Revelation numerous times in, at the end of each one of those uh, church messages in chapters 2 and 3. Uh, those that are the conquerors will and he blesses all these heavenly blessings. He's talking here about us being super conquerors, a- abundant conquerors. In what? All these things. All these things. These things in verse 28 and these things in verse 37 are hard things. It's not the candy bar. It's not the car. It's not the healing. It's the hardship of life. And in all these things in verse 28, we recognize that God has a purpose. And He's going to work it together for good. And in verse 37, He says we're going to abundantly triumph over all these things difficulties and in verse 32 he says this is a gift of God I want to read to you the words of Thomas Schreiner you will be blessed by these words if you will understand them in the context of what we're reading and by God's grace believe them listen to what he writes 
to be more than a conqueror over affliction, distress, persecution, and so on, indicates that these enemies are actually turned to the good of believers through the power of God. This does not in the least detract from the fact that these are enemies that frighten believers. Nor does it deny that they involve suffering. The point is that the love of Christ is so powerful that it turns our greatest enemies into our friends. It's not the enemies that are the friends. It's the one who superintends over those enemies that turns those things to good, that turns those things into those things that we're able to abundantly conquer over, that turns those things into blessings. Suffering for one who comes under the sovereign rulership of God and understands who He is that rules even in these difficulties, suffering becomes a blessing for us. That doesn't mean the process of suffering we enjoy. It's what God is doing. And we trust Him. And our trust grows. And our faith is enriched. And our lives are changed. And so even the suffering we recognize to be a benefit that comes from the very hand of our Heavenly Father. God is for us. And so we have security against opposition. God is for us. And so we recognize the unparalleled nature of His generosity. And thirdly, God is for us, and because of that, we have eternal justification. Eternal justification. Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Well, I'd say that the number of sources of accusation is vast. God's people have been charged with many things from the world, from our own flesh, and from the devil himself. Take a look, please, with me at Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. The main concept that we're understanding is that God is for us. And because God is for us, there are benefits. And the benefits that we're talking about right now is this concept of eternal justification. Don't don't misunderstand or don't not emphasize enough the benefit that it is to know that you're eternally justified. There are so many in the religious world that don't know their eternal destiny. Maybe right now they're doing well spiritually and so they have confidence that one day they will be with the Lord. But if next week they're not doing so well, that confidence is eroded. In other systems, they really are hopeful that those around them will hold them up on their 
days gone by and after they're in the ground, they're hoping that someone will light a candle for them, pray for them, or give some money for them that their soul might be delivered more quickly. Don't underestimate the benefit that it is, my friends, to know that you're eternally justified. Accusations come. Accusations from the world that, that we're, we're broken in our thinking. That we're archaic in our thinking. That we're, we're not very nice people because we don't agree with everything they subscribe to. The world accuses us regularly. The devil accuses us. We'll talk about that in Revelation 12. But don't forget this as well. You accuse you constantly. Every day, you experience it. You know what it's like to look at yourself and think, there's something wrong with you. Now, you don't tell anyone else this. You keep it inside. You don't want them to know how vulnerable you are. There are accusations from your flesh. Come, fast and furious. There's a a battle going on. Don't forget, my friend, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, those accusations will not stand. They cannot stand. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? All those accusations peril and are annihilated at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and at the mouth of the grave of Jesus Christ. He is risen just as He said. Accusations come. But what do they really matter if you are justified? Listen to these words. This is a statement of fact. It's portraying a coming day where Satan will be kicked from heaven, uh, removed eternally from heaven, never to stand in the presence of God that way again, except for his judgment day. Verse 7, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, of course, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come and the accuser for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. Who accuses them, how often? Day and night before our God. And they have conquered him. How did they conquer him? How did they conquer the accusation that comes day in and day out? Night and day and day and night and night and day about you. How did they, how do you conquer him? How is that, that accusation set aside? It's by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He's talking about this future day. He's talking about a particular group of people. The application, the application goes to us. He accuses us. And what is our victory? It's not me. I am not my victory. Oh, this church that I go to. Oh, my church is my victory. Oh, my denomination is my victory. Oh, I'm a Southern Baptist. I'm an Independent Baptist. I'm an Independent Bible-believing this. I'm, uh, you know, 
name any group. They are not your defense. One defender. John calls him our advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. You can't have a better defender than Jesus Christ, the righteous. The narrative is played out in the book of Job where Satan tries to wreak havoc on Job's life. But God's people have been attacked by Satan again and again. But we are God's loved and chosen people. He calls us the elect. Look at verse, uh, back in Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter 8. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God calls us His people, His chosen ones. Paul declares that while we are not sinless of our own accord, God has declared us righteous. It is God who justifies. The charge may come, but God says not guilty. The charge may come, God says righteous. It's not just not guilty. It's righteous. You. Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? God declares you righteous. The accusation may come. Righteous. Have you considered my servant Job? Job is not more righteous than the believer in Jesus Christ. My record in heaven is spotless. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. There is no accusation that will receive a hearing from God. It has been paid for. It is finished. Eternal justification. God's justification removes forever the record of our sin and replaces that record with a record of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is an eternal transaction. It is sealed with the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have all these benefits. Don't forget his benefits. When opposition comes, we are secure. In the midst of a world that watches the rise and fall of the stock market and the ebb and flow of the value of the dollar or the euro or the yen or whatever other thing you're concerned about, we have an unparalleled, generous God who is for us. When accusations come, we have been eternally justified. Fourth benefit that this text gives for us for the fact that God is for us is that God has eliminated condemnation. Now this is, this is very closely aligned with what we've just talked about. It says in verse 34, who is to condemn? Now the NIV supplies an answer, a direct answer to this. It's not in the Greek, but it's interesting anyway. <laughs> no one. Again, it's not in the Greek, so you can't say that's a great translation. But what you can say is, it's correct. 
It's correct. It's a correct answer to the question. They just supplied words that weren't there. No one. Who can condemn? No one. No one. No way. No how. Why? Why can no one condemn? Because there's only one judge. I know who he is. Do you know who the judge is? Do you know who he is? Thank you. Someone. You know who the judge is? It's Jesus Christ. Because you know who the judge is, you know who you're standing before. What else do you know about that judge? Oh, Paul answers that question. It's Christ Jesus. This one that could condemn me is Christ Jesus, the one who died. And even more than that, he's the one who was raised. And even further than that, he's right now on the right hand of the Father. The one who can condemn you is the one who laid down his life, the one who was raised, and the one who sits forever at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies his footstool. Whoa. No condemnation. This is why Paul started the whole chapter with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We have security. We have confidence. We have assurance. Why are we free from condemnation? Number one, Jesus Christ died. Number two, Jesus Christ was raised. Number three, Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God. And number four, Jesus Christ is the judge. Take a look at John chapter 5. We like to talk about biblical truth, right? But in addition to talking about biblical truth, we want to see that what we're saying is truth is actually in the Scriptures, which is why we turn to Scriptures. I could make allusions to Scripture all day, and it'd be helpful... But my words are not powerful words. The words of power come only from God, which is why we turn to or have you see on the screen the words of God and not just hear my references to them. Listen, we're in John chapter 5. Take a look, please, at verses 26 and 27. The context is Jesus has healed a man on the Sabbath day. He's being questioned by the religious people. In verse 26, For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son also to have life in Himself. And He has given Him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Look at back at verse 22. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to whom? The Son. So who's the judge? It's the Son. Jesus is the judge. This is just a sampling of where we find that concept. And as our judge, he stands there and we will give an account. What will you plead? You plead back to him. Him. It's what you've done. It's what you've given. He's given me righteous robes that I will stand in forever. Not because I'm righteous, but because He is, and He has declared me to be righteous. God has declared me to be righteous because He's given me the righteousness of His Son. The judge will judge righteously. We know this. Condemnation is eliminated for the believer. Jesus Christ was condemned in our place. 
But there's an important follow-up question to this because it's very nice for us to talk about the fact that there's no condemnation. It's very nice for us to say, yes, um, I, I won't be condemned because I've trusted Christ. Is that concept of no condemnation true for every man everywhere? There are large segments of society that believe in universal atonement. Not only do all dogs go to heaven, all humans do too. But that's not what the biblical record says. Look at John chapter 3. You're already in John 5. John chapter 3. What about those who have not repented of their sin and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? What happens to the condemnation that is assigned to their sin and their soul? John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16. This is the most popular or known or referenced passage in the Scriptures. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the whole world, excuse me, that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him, what does it say? Is not condemned. That's good news. Here's the bad news. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There is condemnation still. Look down at verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son of God or believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey or is not persuaded or does not believe the Son shall not see life What does that say now? But the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God remains on him. Condemned already in verse 18. Remains on him here in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 when he talks about the fact that we were dead in trespasses and sins. He talks about the fact that the wrath of God is coming upon the children of disobedience. That concept of wrath being on a person is condemnation. Condemnation. So condemnation has not been removed for every man everywhere. It's removed for everyone that will turn from their sin and turn to Jesus Christ. God calls out, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's true for you and it's true for your household. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Acts 4.12 There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. In Romans chapter 10, with the heart man believes, with the mouth confession is made. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be what? saved. Condemnation is removed for those that will believe that Jesus laid down His life as a once for all sacrifice for your sin. That He was raised triumphant over sin. And He, upon your belief in Him, will grant to you eternal justification. Condemnation is eliminated for those that trust 
Jesus Christ. Have you trusted Christ? There is therefore now no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus. This is good news. It's one of the benefits of God being for us. Moving further, in addition, our fifth area of benefit that God is for us is faithful divine intercession. Faithful divine intercession. Back in Romans chapter 8, I'll read it to you if you are not there yet. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. In Hebrews chapter 7, the Bible indicates for us that this is a perpetual state. That Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. As He's at the right hand of the Father, the theologians call that sometimes the session of Jesus Christ. He's, he was buried, He was raised, He was ascended to heaven, and He's at, at His session at the right hand of God the Father. And He is always at that right hand. He's always making intercession for us. We're thankful when Jesus says to Peter, Satan has sought to you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. We like that, right? Well, that concept is true for every believer that Jesus is praying for us. This is good news. What is the basis of Jesus' intercession in this context? We're talking about justification, the elimination of condemnation. There are accusations flying our way. But Jesus pleads what? He pleads the blood. There's a, a song that we sing every now and then. Arise, my soul, arise. I'm going to read the words to you. Not usually a lyric reader, but here you go. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in my behalf appears. Before the throne, my surety stands. Before the throne, my surety stands. My name is written on His hands. He ever lives above for me to intercede. His all-redeeming love. His precious blood to plead. His blood atone for every race. His blood atone for every race. And sprinkles now the throne of grace. Oh, five bleeding wounds he bears received on Calvary. They, the wounds, is, this is what's pictured here, pour effectual, effective prayers. They strongly plead for me the bloody wounds. Forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. A faithful intercessor is who we have. A divine and faithful intercessor. That's a fifth benefit that is ours, that God is for us. And finally, sixthly, and we're going to pick this concept up in a few weeks, ceaseless, unbreakable love. This is a sixth benefit that God is for us. Ceaseless, unbreakable love. Look at verses 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or 
persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that is thorough will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This love spoken of here is tied to the character of God. There is nothing, nothing, and there is no one that is able to remove God's love from God's people. Selah. For those of you that don't know what that means, pause and ponder. God has loved us forever. And God will love us forever. If that doesn't bring rejoicing to your soul, then you do not know the God of the Bible. There is nothing greater in all the world than being assured that you are secure in the love of God. Everything else will fail or come to an end. I love to reference God's statement to the exiled, rebellious people of Israel in Jeremiah 31. Exiled, rebellious people of God, Israel. Listen to these words. The Lord appeared to him from afar. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. God sends a reassuring letter to his people that were experiencing the just recompense for their rebellion in the land of Babylon. God sends to them this message just because you're there doesn't mean anything has changed. Just because you're suffering doesn't mean anything has changed. Just because you have cancer doesn't mean anything has changed. You can't breathe. Nothing has changed. You can't walk. Nothing has changed. You can't see. Nothing has changed. You don't have any money. Nothing. Nothing has changed. You've got to know this. You have got to know this. God's love is not completely identified with our physical experience. It is about what he has done that will never be taken away from us. You might have great wealth. Someone can steal it and it can moth and rust, right? Remember that one? Matthew chapter 6. There is an eternal inheritance that awaits the believer in Jesus Christ that is incorruptible, undefiled, and kept by the power of God. Yeah. God's love 
endures. Listen to how God speaks to his people through the prophet Hosea. In Hosea 11.8, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils, turns, turns about, repents. My heart turns within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. To whom? A rebellious group of people who Hosea went to and the illustration to depict the people of Israel was he was going to go, Hosea, and marry a, a, a whoring wife who one of his children was from him and his wife and the other two children were from his wife's lovers. And this depicts Israel and their relationship with God. And God says, how can I give you up? This is the kind of enduring love that God has promised to you and to me as his people. This compassion spoken of through Hosea is part of God's nature. And this is how Jeremiah is a vessel of conveying it in Lamentations. Listen to these words in Lamentations. You know them. The steadfast love of the Lord, what does it say? Never ceases. His mercies, what? Never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. Because of God's character, my hope remains the same day in and day out, regardless of experience. Because I know who He is. How about you? This constant love of God is tied to His unchanging nature, His faithfulness, and His purposes. For us, believers, no matter what happens in this topsy-turvy world, we have a most important assurance that is ours if we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior because God is for us. If God is for us, who can successfully stand against us? We are assured of God's protection, His generosity, his justification, which means eternal safety, his faithful prayer, and his unceasing love. His faithfulness and love are summed up succinctly in this expression. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates or shows his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the kind of unceasing love that God offers to us. To be a beneficiary of his nonstop eternal love, you must call upon the name of the Lord. You must ask him to save you. And friend, if you're not in that situation where you have this assurance of God's eternal love, I would tell you, you must take care of this today. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. What will happen? You'll be saved. And this assured love that we've spoken of today that is the most precious of treasures will be true about you. Let's pray together. Father, we need you.
We need you to do what only you can do, opening eyes to see, bringing the dead to life. And so we ask you to bring forth a harvest of souls for your glory's sake. And Father, for us that you've saved already, we pray that you would help us to treasure the benefits, that we would not forget all your benefits. These we've spoken of this morning are but a few. They are of utmost importance. And in these we rejoice. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.